Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. I wanted to take a brief minute to say thanks for listening to the podcast. The purpose of Pedagogue is to promote diverse voices at various institutions and help foster community and collaboration among teachers of writing. Each episode is a conversation with a teacher or multiple teachers about their experiences teaching writing, their work, inspirations, assignments, assessments, successes, and challenges. Pedagogue aims to amplify voices. In this episode, I talk with Jay Dalmage about disability studies, ableism, accessible pedagogies and practices, and future directions for disability studies in rhetoric and composition. Jay Dalmage is committed to disability rights in his scholarship, service, and teaching. His work brings together rhetoric, writing, disability studies, and critical pedagogy. His first book, entitled Disability Rhetoric, was published with Syracuse University Press in 2014. His second, Academic Ableism, Disability, and Higher Education, was published with Michigan University Press in 2017 and is available in an open access version online. His third, Disabled Upon Arrival, Eugenics, Immigration, and the Construction of Race and Disability, was published in 2018 with Ohio State University Press. He's the founding editor of the Canadian Journal of Disability Studies. Jay, thanks so much for joining us. I want to start with a question that helps guide the rest of this conversation on disability studies. And I think it's an important one to address from the very beginning. What are some myths about disability? Uh, Okay, well, so I think that there's a lot. I think that disability is like highly mythological. It's it's really been uh, so many people that their kind of um, understanding of disability is shaped by these these common cultural narratives we have about disability, and those narrative the main thing the most important thing to say is those myths and narratives are not written by disabled people, in general people's disabled people's lives are not very well represented unless they conform in a way to the the myths that we already have. And those myths are generally about managing the affect or the emotions or the relationship that able, temporarily able-bodied people or supposedly able-bodied people have to disability. And that's a pretty problematic place to start <laughs> because it, um, the myths have to conform to the, the fear that people have of being disabled. They, they're, they manage those um, fears uh, rather than reflecting a reality. I'll try to make this as relevant as I can to what's happening right now, because I think we're seeing some really powerful myths about disability circulating right now. And one of the most harmful myths about disability is that it's a life not worth living, that that uh, temporarily able-bodied people or normate people assume that if they had a disability, they wouldn't want to be alive anymore. And that myth, that stereotype, that narrative means that we devalue disabled lives. Calling the myths or stories and tracing them through literature or film is one thing, but seeing how those things condition the actual lived experiences of hundreds of thousands of people is another. And they really do come to be all about who has, uh, who lives and dies, who has access to privilege and who doesn't. The, the, the myths and stereotypes, they ensure 
the uh, reification or the kind of solidification of social structures and, and choices, life choices for people. They shape people's lives. So they reach into bodies. In a rhetorical sense, they reach into bodies. And, and they, they, the problem is that they, they, they come out of bodies that aren't disabled bodies. <laughs> so people who have no, no ability to imagine what a disabled life would be like are the people who are making these dictates, right? Um, and on the flip side, uh, the story, the pauses, so-called positive stories that we have around disability are all about overcoming, triumph over adversity, cure, right? Um, miraculous cure, uh, the, the ability to work hard or have a positive attitude and overcome the negatives of a disability. And again, you can see how those are really all about managing the emotions, um, the fears of, of temporarily able-bodied people. The idea that if I did have a disability, through hard work, I would be able to overcome it. So I think those are the two biggest, unfortunately, negative forces, both positive and negative, shaping so many of the depictions that we have about disability. And they're really difficult to, to escape. And like I said, they reach into real bodies and they rearrange bodies in space, right? They, they determine access to, to, to so much. The other thing I'll say is that they're really overdetermined. Like the roles that we have for disabled people are very, uh, you know, one-dimensional. And, and in narrative, in, in popular cultural depictions of disability, disability is often really like, like not about character, it's about plot. It's the thing that drives the plot. It's not the narrator. <laughs> it's not the point of view or perspective. And you know that 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 uh, you know that there's a common uh, overdetermined sense that if if there's a disabled character, they'll be dead or cured by the end of a film or or a narrative. So with that all said, all of this kind of like overdetermination. There's also this story in disability studies that people often tell. It's a kind of apocryphal story, and David Mitchell and Sharon Snyder tell it, I think, in one of their books, that they're literary scholars, and they, they study American literature, and they study disability in American literature. And they were at a conference in Japan and met a Japanese literary scholar, and the Japanese literary scholar said, what do you study? And they said, disability in American fiction. And... Uh, this Japanese scholar said, oh, wow, I can't think of any disability in American fiction and waited like three seconds. And then was like, oh, wait a minute. <laughs> right. Melville, Steinbeck, uh, you know, Hemingway, uh, like all the, 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 the white men of, of American fiction. Right. Um, everything. It's everywhere. Right. But there was something there keeping him from paying attention. And then the scholar says, but I study Japanese literature and there's no disability in Japanese literature and waited like three seconds and then said, oh my God, it's everywhere. So many of the things that the field is built on actually require us to think through and from disability uh, to make sense of them. And at the same time, we will ignore, people will ignore disability as much as they can. There are lots of social structures and systems that say there are no disabled students in my class, which is never true. In Disability Rhetoric, your first book, you write about how communication is embodied and how the body guides all communication. You intersect disability studies and rhetoric. Can you talk more about how the body guides communication and how disability studies provides a framework for better understanding rhetoric and writing? So I think... I'll give you a personal story. You know, I grew up, my brother, Matt, uh, had disabilities, a range of disabilities throughout his life. And um, he had some communication disabilities. So growing up, I did things with my family, like we went to sign language camp in the summers. Because um, he used some sign language, 
he used some technologically mediated communication. Back in those days, it was pretty rudimentary. And he only had use of one hand. So he was my older brother. I was the youngest in the family. I learned how to communicate with him. And we shared a bedroom and um, he was excluded from school. So he, he was having to learn at home that my kids are having to do that right now. He had to do that for four years before we, we went to court and fought for his right to go to school with my sister and I. But I learned so much from him. He was such a teacher to me. When I got into grad school, it's going to sound like a weird jump. But when I read people like Bakhtin or uh, you know Donna Haraway, people who talked about um, the kind of inter-embodied nature of communication, or the technical prosthetically mediated nature of communication. I was like, that's, that's how I learned, right? Because to use his light writer with one hand, he needed somebody's help to press the space bar. When you press the space bar, it would speak, right? So he would set up the whole phrase. And even though he could do it himself, he would ask for help. And a lot of signs he would need to touch his hand to yours because sign, sign language is two-handed <laughs> and he had use of one hand. So he needed some help. But to me, that was such a perfect metaphor for communication for everybody. It's not something you can do alone. You have to build relationships of trust. You have to be seeking and, and, and actively rhetorically listening in an embodied way to other people. And that we all are, are in these kind of prosthetic loops where we rely on technolo technology and relationships and all of these other things. And that I think really prepared me well for thinking about teaching, um, teaching writing right? Not as something that, that we do in isolation. You know, it, that's a rhetorical triangle for me is like <laughs> one hand in one corner, another hand in another, and a rudimentary 80s uh, computer in the other, you know? And so I, I guess that's, that's where I get my sense and have tried to build my definition of rhetoric is in that embodied interface where we need others. And, and communication is, is a place where that need is made material. In academic ableism, you write, Disability has always been constructed as the inverse or opposite of higher education. Can you talk about this from a historical perspective and then how disability continues to be constructed this way? So how disability continues to be constructed as the inverse of higher education? So I'll give you another personal story. You know, my, my brother was excluded from, from education. Right? He, he was being bused to another school in another town where he was learning basically vocational skills, how to count money, how to clean dishes. Instead of being in grade three, four uh, at a regular school with my sister and I. So we fought in, and we lost actually in Supreme Court of Appeal in, in Ontario for his right to go to his neighborhood school. We lost, so we moved. We moved to another school board where he could go to school. And so I really saw, even when he was included, the ways he wasn't included. And when I went to university, I went very, very far away from the small town where I grew up. And I always felt, it always felt wrong because I had spent my childhood fighting for inclusion and higher education. Every message that was sent was around valorizing ability and um, acting like you had no weaknesses, acting like you could work an unlimited amount. <laughs> and um, be successful and everything else needed to be hidden even though everybody nobody was experiencing it that way right but the kind of bigger picture was the town that i grew up in so my mom when she was when she was a child was expecting a baby brother and this was my uncle robert and he never came home he was born with most likely he had down syndrome at that time doctors told parents that if you had a disabled child they needed to be institutionalized lots of time it wasn't even framed as a choice so he was institutionalized and he 
lived his life in an institution and he died there at a very young age, basically from the flu. He wasn't given treatment. This institution, which is called Huronia Regional Center, was where in the town I grew up in. So it wasn't just that we had this layer of exclusion that we were fighting with my brother. It's that the main industry in town was this exclusive, what used to be called a school for the feeble-minded, right? It wasn't a school at all. Nobody learned anything there. It was a it was a highly abusive place. It was a warehouse, right? And so, to, so this is the kind of backdrop of, of of my growing up, right? Is this? And it, it, I think it is for so many people. So when I began to kind of research the history of higher education, I was also engaged with working with people who had been in this institution. My mom, her first jobs. This is kind of awesome story about my mom. Her first job was at that institution. So after her parents told her that she could not mention her brother's name again, she spent her childhood working to be able to get in there. And she did the work of finding homes in communities for people when they shut those institutions down. So she helped to fix that the, the thing that really caused so much damage in her life, right? But I was connecting with people and I'm, I'm involved in a big research project right now, helping people write their own stories about the institutionalization and their move into the community. So when I first started researching the history of higher education, what I came to understand was these places were built at the same time and they look exactly, it's the same architects, right? Who built these places, one for the highest order of society and one for supposedly the lowest, right? One place where you're supposed to get the, mo the most elite people together to meet one another, right, and marry, and one where people are being sterilized and dying. And the research, research eugenic research is being done at these places by the folks in the, in the ivory tower, right? And that, so there's this shadow relationship. To me, there's something very, very problematic about spaces for the most elite, <laughs> just as problematic as spaces for the least. And so the mission of these universities being shaped around these kind of eugenic ideals relies on the mission of these other places being shaped along much darker kind of eugenic ideals. But um, for me, it was foundational. This was how I grew up. So coming to kind of understand how that shaped me made me think about the ways that that must be shaping educational experiences and intentionally so, right? For kind, of, for kind of for generations. So I have a personal question. We're talking about the problematic nature and history of higher education. Do you struggle with being a professor at the university, being in this space that is exclusive and caters historically and presently to able-bodied individuals? No, I think, that, I think it's a personal question that everybody should be reflecting on. Right. And absolutely. I, I have a huge issue with that. I, I, and, and I think one of my coping mechanisms, because this is where I work, I mean, part of it is that they're false meritocracies. Right. The, the, the rigor of higher education is fake. Right. Which is terrible, <laughs> except that then I feel like we do have some responsibility to the students who are being damaged and harmed within that system. Right. Because we're we're in we're in an era of unbelievably high cultural significance around universities and they shape culture hugely and so it's not necessarily really an option to say i find this ethically compromising i'm not going to be involved in it right you you can do that about a hobby <laughs> 
in my mind, right? You can't do that about something that is, that is actively causing so much harm, right? In the, in the name of portioning out so much privilege. I, I don't know that that's, that's, but that doesn't mean that I've like finished thinking about this. I, I find myself all the time testing the world in which I work, right? How will the university respond to this test? As though if it fails, I'll, I'll leave, right? Or it will prove how damaging it actually is, right? But a big test will be how will universities handle the fact that right now there's a completely disproportionate access to education. Will they be fine with that? Will they just take whoever they can get, right? And because if they do, then they're, they're pretty much admitting that they, they care only about the people who, who right now have the financial means or the health to be able to do this, right? But it's tests like that, like setting up these kind of yardsticks in, and I'm tricking myself every time I do it. But I think we all kind of do. I mean, that's, to me, this is about turning this back as well, right? For, for listeners or for readers. How do you all <laughs> handle that, right? I don't, yeah. So, I mean, it's, it's, such, a, it's such a great question. How can we make our pedagogies and practices more accessible in the writing classroom? Yeah, and I mean, this is something that, this is the major thing I think about. And in terms of like any future work that I wanna do, I think I'm or- oriented around th- this, this idea of, of how we can make what we do more accessible to more people um, and, and extend that, the, the, the teaching that we do so that it reaches more people and that more people have a genuine opportunity to learn and to contribute to the conversation and shape the future of higher because it's not just about us portioning out this privilege it's that it's that we need more people involved in in the conversation that shapes what higher education is going to look like right it, it sounds like a it sounds like a just like a um, magical solution but universal design it has a pretty magical name which is pro- problematic it's not magical at all. It's a lot of work. <laughs> We're talking about labor. Philosophically, it's the idea that we should be planning for the most diverse group of students that we can. And that, that while the, the public paints higher education as this like radical place full of you know, um, snowflakes and, and um, communists, it's a highly, highly conservative space. We keep doing the same things over and over and over again. We're like an evid- evidence-based you know, universities are claim to be evidence-based, but all the good evidence around teaching we ignore for years and years. <laughs> and people just keep doing the things that almost the, the, the kind of like levels of hazing that they were put through as students, they, they put their own students through again. So even something like time-tested exams, there's no data that shows students learn more. We just keep doing it. We structure entire universities uh, logistically around time-tested exams. They absolutely dominate the mental health of students for, for, for periods of time. And there's no good research. And, and then to get for students to have accommodations, to, uh, they have to jump through all these medical and legal hoops. <laughs> I mean, it's a soapbox issue for me, but like what if instructors had to prove the pedagogical usefulness of giving a time test or exam before they give one? The only thing that they could say is that they perpetuate discrimination that already existed in society because that's all the data shows that they do right so universal design is this idea of um there's three principles one is that we should teach a variety of ways the ways that we kind of deliver information and structure conversations we should just do it in a broad number of ways in terms of the cultural context we bring to the class in terms of how we deliver it 
you know, your podcast having a transcript and an audio version is positive redundancy, right? That's a concept. More ways we do it, the more access that there will there will be. The other the other thing is that we sh we structure um, a variety of forms of assessment or ways for students to show what they know. And then the final piece is just kind of dynamic ways to learn to actively learn in the classroom. I'll give you some tangible examples. So um, for me, for for and I'll admit this for like 15 years, I assigned a participation grade in my classes. Sometimes like 20, 30 percent. I had no idea what I was assessing in a writing classroom in terms of participation. It was basically how much did you talk? And students would get good participation grades even if they were kind of like a negative force in the classroom. <laughs> and I, because I was basically telling them, put your hand up all the time, interrupt people. Like the more you talk, the better you'll do, right? That was really a problem. And I was like assigning that grade like the day that I assigned grades. It's just horrible. So, I started thinking, what is the universal design approach to participation? And I know there are a lot of valuable ways to participate in class without ever saying a word, right? When we move classes online, we understand that like some students are not going to have something to say in a 50 minute class. They may have a ton to say three hours later or a day later, right? Universities are run like factories. Like they're really on this kind of timeline as though we only can ever think or produce in these little chunks. And yet nobody comes to your office at like nine in the morning and says, I'll be back at 1030. I need a publishable article in an engineering firm. They don't, you know, people are working on their, their, their plans for a bridge and somebody comes in and says, okay, stop now. Whatever bridge you had is the bridge we're going to build. But that's the way we structure class, classwork, right? And, and things like participation. So uh, develop this kind of means of saying to students, you tell me some of the valuable ways you're able to participate. And I've been able to build this much, much bigger repertoire of valuable ways to participate, right? Students taking pictures and doing visual descriptions of things that got written on the board. I had one student, one term who took minutes of every class. It's like their parents were really into Roger's rules or something. Uh, I don't know where they got, or maybe they were in some student society where they were doing that, but it was so valuable to me, right? And then if a student missed, they could read the minutes. And so it was valuable to other people than me as well right? Creating a kind of community of learning. You know, some students just, they don't, they cannot do peer review very well in class. They need the time and the space to frame things and, and, and find the right tone and all those other things. So opening that participation up to say to students, you tell me some valuable ways to participate has really exploded that for me and made it so much more valuable. I think I've landed on something that's much more equitable and valuable for everybody. That's a big one, right? And it's, it's almost like a, a philosophical uh, explosion, right? Like you're, you're changing authority in the classroom, you're changing um, how you're assessing a big chunk of what it is you're doing, and you're giving over a lot of control, right? So that's a pretty big example, actually. I'll give you a small example. The idea of describing everything that you do visually, so that when you show slides, right, when you're showing students how to how to present research, for example, data and tables and things like that, just describing everything you ever show students, which takes a little bit of extra time, is universal design as well. It's it's giving another pathway into that text, right, for the student. And the thing about that is it also shows students how we read things, which is really valuable. So that's just one example, right? But I think you can take you can take little individual pieces of what we do. And if you think, what's the way for me to engage every student in the broadest range of possible students in doing this, 
Um, that's the philosophy that, that the principle behind universal design. What are some future directions for disability studies and rhetoric and composition? It's a great question. Well, I think to begin with, there's some, some natural overlap with rhetoric and composition and disability in terms of their institutional history. You know, RETCOMP has been a sorting space. It's been a place to, to help students move ahead, but it's also been a place to intentionally hold students behind. So we need, dis we need disability studies and, and we need a, an understanding of how disability is used, is attributed to groups to, to, to um, control access to privilege. There's that kind of disciplinary history that's backwards facing but it's also never gonna go away, right? That is going to continue to be writing studies relationship within the university. It is going to be used as a, you know, a sorting gate as well. But to me, I think the reason I got into, into teaching writing was because I sort of like, when I began, it was really deep in the process movement, right? And the process movement gave us access to thinking about the labor that students put into the work they do, right? What does their writing situation look like? How do they think? What is the path from an idea through, right? And that is illuminating in ways that lots of other disciplines don't have that much access to. When you begin to try to understand the process of writing, it's inevitable that you understand it as a process that includes failure, and difficulty, even though we romanticize it as something completely opposite, everybody experiences that is it as an embodied act that's very difficult, <laughs> that requires stops and starts and failures. And so again, like that, that apocryphal story I was telling you before, when you look around, disability is everywhere. And that's not just in disabled students, but it's, it's that communication itself requires us to have some understanding of the incomplete nature of our bodies right and and the and and our need for other people and our need for technology and prosthetics and and those things that i began the interview sort of talking about so i don't know i mean that's a pretty high level philosophical <laughs> argument to make but i think in a, in a much in a, in a very tangible sense i love my favorite class to teach and i keep requesting it is just first year writing for students who don't want to take it in their first semester of university because that's where we can begin to structure a relationship with university that is not about being the best all the time, but can be about asking for help, right? Can be about accessing and calling for more resources to support student life, right? Student mental health. Understanding that we all need accommodations, right? And that some, some students need to, are gonna need to fight for their legal right to an education. Getting back again to the story at the beginning, right? It connects us with the reality in our classrooms rather than the myth or fantasy that all students um, are going to find university life easy or, or even um, familiar, right? Or, or, or um, uh, welcoming. So I don't know that there's this kind of like position that we have that's really just a practical, tangible one in that we are the person who's going to know each student's name within the first two weeks of their time on campus. And so we have a responsibility to understand that 20% of those students are gonna have disabilities that they're gonna to need to have accommodations for, and that everybody is going to experience the university as a disabling space, right? That's putting up barriers that don't need to be there. Thanks, Jay. 
And thank you, Pedagog listeners and followers. Until next time.